Hi, I'm Dirk Hartung. And my name is Lauritz Gerlach. And this is the Legal Tech Podcast Series as an original series podcast production by Law Podcast Media. Our guest for this episode is Florian Glatz. He is a lawyer, software developer, and entrepreneur in the blockchain space. Welcome, Florian. Hi. So Florian, it's a pleasure to have you. Our topic today is smart contracts. These days, we talk a lot about smart contracts, but not all of the listeners might be familiar with them. So could you give a short run-of-the-mill explanation for what is meant by this term from your understanding? Sure. Smart contracts are really just mere software programs that are special in the sense that they run in the context of a blockchain. So they are normal software coded in some programming language, but the execution environment, a so-called blockchain, gives them special powers, so to speak. They can manage crypto assets essentially almost autonomously or fully autonomously, really, meaning that they become something like like an independent economic actor in their own right within the context of a given blockchain, such as Ethereum, that came up originally with this concept of uh, smart contracts. And it's quite special still nowadays to have software act independently, managing funds and doing you know crazy things autonomously in this world. So this makes them kind of special. And of course, their name also makes them special. Smart contracts, that's a weird name to give to software. And so it has always made lawyers very curious why you would call them contract or smart contract. It has some kind of idea of artificial intelligence around it. So yeah, it's a very curious concept. And yeah, lots of discussions to be had around them, I guess. I'm certain. You said smart contracts are on a blockchain, right? And I was wondering, are the two necessarily connected or could there be any examples of smart contracts before the blockchain technology was invented and popularized? Okay, yeah. So historically, I think the first person to use the term was a lawyer called Nick Sabo, who in the early 90s kind of tried to imagine, you know, how contracts could evolve in the context of digitalization, in particular in the context of the internet, which was quite new back then. And he coined this term smart contracts as a digital form of contracts, but he didn't really know, you know, what exact form these would take. And now fast forward 20 years, where in 2014, a young kid in Canada named Vitalik Buderin devised a kind of second generation blockchain that improved upon a lot of aspects of Bitcoin, which was the original blockchain. And one of the core innovations that he came up with was this idea of software that you could execute in the context of a blockchain with all these, you know, special features that a blockchain gives you. And most importantly, the aspect of immutability. And because he was aware of the work of Nick Sabo in the early 90s, decided to give his software programs the name smart contract because he thought, you know, pretty much what Sabo was envisioning, what contracts could be like in a fully digital age, so to speak. That's pretty much what I've come up with here, these software programs. And so he lent that name and gave it to his invention. And so this is how historically it came to be that nowadays we talk a lot about smart contracts. However, if you kind of ignore that particular history and you just look at this concoction smart contracts, you could say, well, okay, a smart contract is a contract that has some smartness to it. 
And then, of course, you know, you could talk about anything that somehow has to do with contracts and is somehow smart. So it could be something with artificial intelligence or something, you know, using an algorithm to do some kind of automation or something like this. So, of course, the term could mean anything. But historically correct is this combination of Nick Sabo and Vitalik Buderin, who both kind of came up with interesting concepts in a time of like 20 years apart from another. So digging in a little bit into that history and also to make our listeners precisely understand what we're talking about, there is this notion of computational law and computable contracts in the space also. That has been around for even longer and it refers to the idea that we can somehow represent traditional contracts in a way makes them executable for computers. Can you comment on the relationship of smart contracts to these computable contracts? Is there an overlap or how would you distinguish between these concepts? Yeah, that's a great question. So I don't know when the term computable contract was first used. The time I first stumbled upon it was in a 2012 article by Harry Serden, who at the time was at the Codex Institute in California, but it might be even much older than that. So when I started to do my research in what today is called legal tech, but before that was called legal informatics, I think, I was very surprised to learn that legal informatics is decades old. It's like as old as, in a sense, computers, or at least, you know, at the time when computers were first available at universities, let's say the 1950s or something like that. Lawyers also started to think about the application of these computing machines to the law. But the idea of making law computable is even older than that. Like there are historical documents of, for example, Leibniz trying to philosophically understand whether thinking of lawyers can actually be, you know, expressed mathematically and kind of reduced to a pure computational problem in a sense. So computational contracts, computational law are in itself not very new. Lawyers have been kind of thinking about the nature of what we do as lawyers in a sense, for centuries, really. But I think what makes computable contracts their own uh, thing really is just this notion that something I picked up in, I think, 2015 from a really great article, which is this idea of contracts as state machines. I think this is a very powerful metaphor, potentially, because it combines a concept from computer science, state machines, with the, the legal concept of a contract. And this is a very fruitful kind of metaphor and prism to look at contracts with. And yeah, it might be another way to talk about computable contracts. So if I'm not mistaken, you're referring to contracts as automaton, the computational representation of financial agreements by Mark Flood and Oliver Goodenough, which might be interesting for our listeners to check out. Absolutely, yes. That was a great article, I think. It is originally written in 2015 and was then revised in March of 2017 and is easily and freely available on the internet for research. Okay, so we have that and we have an early idea of where smart contracts are, how they are related to other terms in the field. Now, if again we dig into the relationship to blockchain technology, I think it would be interesting to see why this is relevant. If you look at the history of computational law, as you said, this has been around for a long time and even you as someone who was naturally interested in the space were surprised to learn about it. So I think we can't deny that for most lawyers, the research that happened in computational law 
for a long time has not been very practice relevant. They have been able to live their lives without knowing much about this community. And it is my understanding that you would argue that blockchain technology is a necessary building block that differentiates our current situation from, say, a situation 20 years ago. Is that understanding correct? Or how would you describe the role of blockchain technology in this context? I would really give a very special role to blockchain technology in the emergence of this term smart contract and the discussion around it. I would go back to Sabo, actually, who in the 90s, you know, was kind of guessing what the future could look like. And he essentially said what we would need to make this vision of smart contract possible is something like a God protocol. That's the term that he used. And what he meant by that is like, we would need a protocol that can act as a neutral entity that can sit in between multiple parties to a contract or any kind of system that relates to just more than one party that can in a neutral fashion kind of coordinate the relationships between these parties like some kind of medium that is by itself neutral it doesn't care about the particular relationship of any given party in the system anybody can use that protocol to you know exchange goods and services transact payments enforce contractual obligations and these kinds of things. And he didn't know what that God protocol, as he called it, would end up being in the end. He had literally no clue. But he came logically, in a sense, to the conclusion that this neutral intermediary would be required. And the funny thing is that 20 years later, somebody came up with this idea of a blockchain. And a blockchain turns out to be the God protocol, so to speak. The blockchain is this neutral execution environment for software where you can actually execute the actual contractual obligations of a contract. It's literally the first time ever in human history that you can specify rights and obligations of a contract in software and then inject that software program into an execution environment. And this execution environment will enforce these contractual rights and obligations without the ability to be biased or without the ability to be censored or interrupted or anything like that. It's a neutral execution environment. And this is incredibly special. And without this invention, I don't think we would be talking about smart contracts today. Because look at what, for example, you know, Uber or Airbnb have been doing, right? Like, If I order a cab on Uber and I get in the cab and I get out and Uber automatically just withdraws the amount I owe to the driver from my credit card, like I've never touched a payment button or anything. This is all automatic, right? You could call this a smart contract, but nobody would ever call this a smart contract. It's just how the Uber app works, right? And so we only talk about smart contracts because of this particular specific invention of the blockchain, which introduces this totally new new thing where we actually can have something like Uber without the company Uber, right? That's a unique thing about it. So then my follow-up would be, have we just given an existing technology a new name to a certain extent or maybe reverse? Is there a need for this? Because for many people, Uber seems to work quite well. It is built on their very own technology, but it solves the real world problem, one could argue. What would you say in that regard? 
You know, I think Uber is the naive way of how we would build a ride-sharing service if we don't know any better. But I'm pretty sure that down the road, we will see ride-sharing services that work fundamentally differently than Uber does today and which uses blockchain protocols in many crucial places. And one of the reasons why I'm so convinced about that is because we have a very real problem today with services like Uber, which is essentially this lock-in effect that these services create, for example, for the drivers. So as a driver for Uber, I'm building up this reputation capital within Uber, the app, basically, which consists of all these ratings that I get from guests, which, you know, give me a five-star rating or a four-star rating or whatever. And these ratings are actually really important to get new customers because the algorithm of the system looks at how satisfied my customers are. And this kind of lock-in effect makes it really hard for a driver to, you know, switch to a competitive service. And what we actually want is a system where... This reputation is attached to the identity of the driver, not to the service within which this driver has worked for this reputation. Because, I mean, the driver is a reliable driver, independent from if he does this work in the Uber network or in the Lyft network or the FreeNow network or wherever. And so in a blockchain system, this is how it would naturally work. But in the Uber system, it's deliberately built in such a way that it doesn't work like that. Because Uber wants, you know, all the driver for itself. It doesn't want to share them with competitors. So in the platform economy, where the natural dynamic is a winner-takes-it-all effect, we want to build systems that enable competition. And a blockchain naturally lends itself to such a system. And so that's why I'm quite convinced that smart contracts will play quite an important role in solving coordination problems in a superior way than what we're using today, which is, I think, just the first iteration of ride sharing and and other kinds of services like that. Okay, let's shift gears for a moment. When you talked about contracts as state machines and the neutrality of the blockchain technology, it reminded me of something I've recently heard. The thing is, humans make mistakes when we write contracts, as we all know as lawyers, but also when writing code. I heard someone compare smart contracts to bug bounties. A bug bounty is a program that large tech companies often use to incentivize people who find vulnerabilities in their code to turn this knowledge over to them rather than use it for criminal means. The way that works is if you find a bug, you can submit it, and depending on on the severity of the bug, you will get a payout from the company. So the comparison with the smart contract goes like this, essentially. If you can find a vulnerability in the smart contract, you can exploit it without hindrance and thereby sort of pay yourself money more or less legally. And that is also the example that's often brought in this context is the DAO, a venture capital fund based on the Ethereum blockchain in 2016, where people siphoned off the money that was in that DAO, a venture capital fund. So do you agree with this comparison or do you think it doesn't hold? I think expressing contracts as software naturally leads to a much stronger use of standardization and open source. Why? Well, because first of all, if you have a bug in your smart contract, it exactly can be exploited very easily and it can cost you millions, right? I mean, the same can be true for legal contracts. There is the famous million dollar comma in legal contracts. If you don't know this case, I would 
would recommend you to Google it. But I think it happens less often or rather, you know, once a mistake in a legal contract comes up, that can be, you know, years later. And probably the person affected by this bug has switched law firms, you know, three times over or the person in the law firm that, you know, came up with this bug is, you know, they've left, they've switched firms 10 times or whatever. So there is no natural responsibility loop or feedback loop that would establish this clear connection between there's a bug. It's then in front of a court, it's discovered, who came up with this. Like law is so obfuscated that this feedback loop is broken. And so we're not so familiar with this. But I think in reality, it's pretty similar. We just don't realize it because the timeframes are much bigger. But in software, timeframes, you know, shrink down to potentially mere seconds, right? It can be that you deploy a smart contract. Somebody is running an automated program to search for specific kinds of bugs automatically. And, you know, seconds later, all your money is gone. Like this stuff literally happens. So when you're using smart contracts instead of legal contracts, you are literally forced to write as little code yourself as possible, right? Your motivation is to use code of other people that has been tried before, tested before, where many, many people looked at it and, you know, found potential bugs and changed it and so on. So your motivation is literally to reuse as much as possible. And so this changes the whole dynamic of how contracts are being drafted. On top of that, of course, you have all these tools that software developers have developed over decades, you know, like compilers and, you know, um, just programs that help you to debug your program before it goes in production. So all the things that lawyers should already be doing voluntarily, but aren't because economically they are not incentivized to do it. The incentives change completely when you go to smart contracts. And this is a good thing for the clients, for the lawyers, for the ecosystem, for everybody. So I think overall, it's a great thing. And this saying, you know, smart contracts are bug bounty. It's like, yeah, it's true, but it's not really what it's about in the bigger scheme of things. Florian, since you mentioned software testing, I think that's a very intriguing idea. So can you tell us a little bit more about how smart contracts could be automatically tested for vulnerabilities and bugs and how that could possibly be translated to actual legally binding agreements? What is the thinking behind what you just mentioned? Yeah, so I don't think we really need to look at smart contracts for that. So any kind of software that is going to be used in a production system where, you know, a lot of critical processes depend on it, that could be in many different contexts, there is a big incentive to find bugs before you deploy them in production. Of course, with smart contracts, monetary damage you suffer from a bug can be very apparent, right? Because smart contracts oftentimes literally manage you know, millions or even billions of dollars of crypto assets. Whereas, you know, let's say Amazon, the web shop, you know, somebody deploys a faulty software there and then Amazon is down for 10 minutes. Well, how many millions now did it cost Amazon for the downtime that they've suffered, right? They know it internally, but it's less obvious. So I guess that would be the difference. But generally, in terms of software, it's all the same. And so there is this big incentive to find bugs beforehand. And there is great software in place that finds bugs, you know, beforehand. And it's a mixture of the programming language that you use, you know, the stricter the rules are of the language in which you program, the more difficult it is to produce a bug. 
right? So one typical example of that is strongly typed language versus a dynamically typed language. What does that mean? It means that when you define a variable in a strongly typed language, you have to define the kind of information you are even allowed to assign to this variable, right? So it could be that, you know, I'm defining the variable called number, and I'm saying, well, it's of the type integer, which means that I can only assign natural numbers to the variable number. In a dynamically typed language, I would just say, you know, I define the variable number, but I'm not going to tell the program what kind of information I'm going to assign to this variable. It could be a string of text like, you know, hello world, or it could be an integer, or it could be a floating point number, or something completely different. And it's, it becomes quite apparent that in the strongly typed language, it's much harder for me to create you know, bugs because I have to be very explicit about what I do. And so there is a lot of tradition in software and conventions and so on to prevent bugs. And a lot of that stuff could already be adopted in law. And you know, I would say great lawyers that are, you know, the kinds of lawyers that actually draft contracts and, you know, really lengthy, complex contracts, they probably have their own internal conventions and systems to prevent problems down the road. They probably have developed a lot of that stuff. But none of this is shared or discussed in a community or become a convention of a bigger social circle. This is all, you know, the little stuff they do for themselves and tell nobody about it because as lawyers, we're being raised to never share the good stuff with others, right? We're being taught to keep it for ourselves, to be competitive and so on. So the whole mindset of lawyers is really backwards when you look at how software developers are doing it. And if we look at the world of software versus law, I think the software developers have turned out to be the more successful bunch on pretty much every metric. And so I think slowly we're kind of changing our ways and we're learning and we're getting more like the software developers but it's a really long process that takes like a generation to really be executed but i think it's happening we can see it all over the place and in particular young lawyers are very open-minded to this kind of stuff so you were going for culture i think while i originally thought you were going for automated software tests writing tests and deploying you said tools so i think that just to make clear to our listeners what we mean by that is that you would hope that in the process of writing the code obvious mistakes would be flagged and highlighted and that is one part while you create it and then there is of course once you think you have finished your program you can run a diverse set of tests that have to be written again to make sure that the inputs you use generate the outputs you want. So this whole mentality of testing your contracts in all types of situations is what I thought where the particular strength of a smart contract might be lying. So that was why I originally asked, is this something that could only be done with contracts in a smart contract world? Or can you see that being done with traditional contracts too? Yeah, I mean, okay, so in the world of artificial intelligence, I guess anything is possible, right? I mean, we may have at some point some sort of AI that can actually take a human language contract and somehow do some interesting things with it and find bugs. That's certainly possible. And there are things that probably are already being done today, you know, like comparing the clauses of a contract with how it's done in all the other contracts. And then you can say, well, you know, everybody else writes it this way. You're writing it that way. Why are you doing this? Probably not a good idea, right? Follow the convention. So this is one kind of thing, I guess, that is already possible. But all the stuff that software developers do is really 
possible because the program or the software they write is software. So it's written in a language that can be fully interpreted by a computer. And so the kind of testing that you're talking about is Actually, the right or the best way or the officially correct way to do it is actually not to write your software and then write tests. That's the wrong way around. The way you're supposed to do it, and this is called test-driven development, is that you write your tests first and then you execute your program, which literally contains no code and it fails every test right? Because naturally it cannot comply with any of the specifications that you've written. And then you slowly start to build your actual program and step-by-step it will fail less and less tests until it passes every test. And then you've successfully written your software. So it starts with the specification in the form of tests and it ends with the software, not the other way around. This is the official test-driven development approach. And applying this to law, in my mind, only makes sense really when the contract itself is software. In human language contracts, I mean, maybe you could do this too. I never really thought about it. But I mean, probably there is something interesting to take away from it. I mean, I've never worked as a lawyer that extensively, you know, drafts contracts. And I'm sure people who do that, they have come up with all kinds of interesting methods to write really good contracts, like human language contracts. I don't know all their secrets, but I'm sure these two worlds can learn from one another for sure. Okay, talking a bit about applications, in what particular areas would smart contracts on a blockchain be more convenient than regular contracts? And can you give some real world examples of where they're already being used? Yeah, so I think just before I go into this, I want to really make clear that smart contracts are software programs that are special because they're executed in a blockchain as an execution environment. So they are not legal contracts or legal contract replacements on a one-to-one level, but they are clearly somehow relevant to the legal system. Absolutely, but not in this, you know, straightforward or naive way that you might assume from the name. Okay, I think this is important to understand. Now, having said that, it's really exciting at the moment because I've been running around over the years telling lawyers about smart contracts and and how awesome they are and everything. But it was only ever, you know, really like theory most of the time that I was saying because there were very few actual applications of smart contracts out there. However, since approximately a year now, we're seeing a very interesting phenomenon called decentralized finance that has emerged merged on mostly the Ethereum blockchain, but there's now more and more other blockchains that are hosting communities and ecosystems that do this as well. And in the context of decentralized finance, we see crazy applications of smart contracts that produce incredible things. And it is truly showing the world how incredibly disruptive smart contracts are as a concept. And it also proves to regulators and lawmakers and governments all over the world how disruptive this technology is to the concept of the law as a coordination mechanism in society. It's incredibly disruptive. I think it's the most disruptive stuff happening at the moment in many, many ways. But it's not like, you know, in a straightforward way, 
replacing contract law or anything like that. It's a bit more complicated, I guess, than that. But to get to the point of it, decentralized finance is the place to look at if you want to understand what smart contracts are capable of. So let us talk about regulators for a moment, since you brought that up. You're right that there is increasing attention by regulators. And I think the first area in which this shows up are regulators on financial products. So we see it in the United States with the SEC. We can see it in Germany with the BaFin. There are different strategies for approaching these phenomena from a regulatory perspective. How would you, without getting into the details of it, describe these approaches? And do you think that we have the right tools in our belt to regulate smart contracts on the blockchain? Great question. So I would not say that regulators have come up with any approach to really regulate smart contracts. I think we're very far from that. There's one official in the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, that regulates financial markets in the United States. Her name is Hester Pierce, and she's also called Crypto Mom. And she's really cool because she's an SEC official, but she really gets crypto and she's sympathetic to it. And she recently created two proposals on GitHub, this co-sharing platform, where she proposed essentially a kind of sandbox approach for the United States for regulating decentralized financial applications. And so that's pretty cool, but it's still a very high level thing and has nothing particular, I think, to do with smart contracts in, in any sense. A bit more involved approach we actually see in Germany, but it has nothing to do with the regulator, in this case, the BaFin. It's actually the Ministry of Justice where that has come up with a proposal for a regulation for digitizing securities in Germany. And the ministry has basically proposed to replace a paper deed on which securities have traditionally been issued and certified with a smart contract. And so, you know, they had to come up with a definition of, for a smart contract and they had to come up with a way to essentially apply this particular German thing that is called Sachenrecht. So it's the rules that regulate physical objects. I guess that's how you would translate it. Uh, how to apply property law. Yeah, I mean, it's not ownership, right? It's more like possession and stuff, right? That kind of stuff. But yeah, so how to apply these rule sets to entries in a smart contract, so tokens, as we call them in the blockchain world. And that you could say, wow, that is a sophisticated, complex approach of a, re of a or not a regulator, but a lawmaker to deal with, you know, this phenomenon of smart contracts. So and for anybody who's interested in this, they should look at this law. It's historical for sure. Right. But again, it shows a fundamental lack of understanding, in a sense, of the whole, um, not really a fundamental lack of understanding, but a, a lack of imagination, I would say, and a lack of the ability to really grasp the potential of this technology for their own benefit, because they didn't dare to do many innovative things with the concept. But still, nonetheless, it is a first approach and it is quite interesting to look at. Yeah, I forgot the rest of your question. No, I think you've answered it. And I like the challenge that you had in the end where you said they have done something, but this is not innovative enough. It's not thinking outside of the box. So my follow-up is naturally, what should have been done? Do you have an idea for more bold actions? What would be the right path to pursue at this point? 
First of all, you know, one kind of low-hanging fruit when considering to digitize the issuance of securities with the help of smart contracts is to then actually go ahead and say, well, you know, we will provide the regulator, in this case, BaFin, will provide a standard open source set of smart contracts that anybody can, you know, download from Bafin's GitHub repository. And if you do your issuance with the help of their standard smart contracts, you have a lower compliance burden to fulfill ahead of time when you prepare for the issuance, right? And so in this standard set of smart contracts from Bafin, you could have a lot of predefined, you know, features of the smart contract, like, for example, an admin key that is held by Bafin that can be used in case of some, you know, abuse case where then Bafin could restore certain transactions or, you know, change the amount of securities that somebody holds. Another aspect you could do is, you know, this whole problem of KYC and, you know, AML money laundering prohibition, where in the standardized smart contract, you could have some built-in KYC systems and all kinds of interesting aspects. And the great thing about smart contracts is that you can very easily verify that somebody used exactly that version of the smart contract that Bafin provides and hasn't changed a single byte of it. That's very easy to verify. You can do it on chain. And so you can have very easy, low cost compliance system that really actually takes advantage of smart contracts to lower the compliance burden, which then in the end would allow a lot more, you know, small and medium enterprises in Germany to issue securities, to refinance some kind of debt, right? Because Germany is very proud of its small and medium enterprises. Small and medium enterprises traditionally have a hard time, you know, to access capital markets and credit lines and all this kind of stuff. So if there's anything on blockchain, it's liquidity. There is like a shit ton of money on blockchains, right? So, you know, bring these worlds together, allow SMEs to be really easy fashion to compliant issuances and so on, and, you know, bring this all together. That I think was one of the low hanging fruits that they didn't take because I think they literally have no idea. They can't even fathom all this. You know, they are not there yet. I mean, I don't get tired of telling them that, but it really takes time for institutions to absorb that knowledge and make it operational for them. There are, of course, individuals that understand this, but institutionally, they are not there yet. But to me, these are some of the low-hanging fruits. So lower compliance costs and also use digital identity systems for KYC sharing to actually create an environment in Germany where I can literally invest in seconds in all kinds of, you know, financial assets that are issued by, you know, German issuers and so on and so forth. Some really unique stuff that no other jurisdiction has as of today, but it's actually possible. Technology is out there. It's just nobody has done it yet. And I think we could have done that, but uh, yeah, we didn't. Okay. Thinking a bit broader for a second and going a bit more in the future, one of the overarching themes of cryptocurrencies and crypto in general is that it eliminates having to trust the other party. And this is a very old problem in law as in life. Currently have some very old solutions for this problem that we haven't used. For example, the securities and stock market regulators, the Bafin that you mentioned to certify securities. We have notaries to certify signatures. We have land registries to certify ownership. And we have shipping documents to certify that the correct person gets the correct shipment. Do you see these intermediary parties and institutions and solutions being eliminated from the process in the long run by smart contracts? 
I think it's a bit more complicated. So if you look at decentralized finance, which is, I think, the first area where we see the full force of blockchain, a classic intermediary like a bank is not needed anymore, right? However, people still, you know, like intermediaries to manage their wallet for them, for example. Or they like an intermediary to, let's say, you know, manage their portfolio of coins that they are staking in different protocols or in different, you know, DeFi applications and so on. So there is always a desire for people, for intermediaries to simplify things. However, the fundamental difference is that the intermediary does not own the infrastructure anymore. So that means that the intermediary has no way to create lock-in effects. And that means the intermediary can any time be replaced by another intermediary that does the exact same thing without any service interruption or inconvenience for me. Like with a click of a button, I can switch the intermediary. And this is a just a very different world. This is a world where the user is in power, not the intermediary. So this is what blockchain brings us. Intermediaries are not going away. They are useful. But the way that digital has worked so far is that the intermediary, out of pure rational interest, has become a gatekeeper because they owned the you know the infrastructure or controlled a certain bottleneck and so on and this gave them exorbitant power exorbitant value and made basically created what we call today surveillance capitalism and governments you know were kind of you know also happy about that right i mean the relationship between the united states and google and facebook and so on i mean <laughs> i think this is a very you know, close relationship. They like each other very much. And we're now transitioning into a new era where the infrastructure is not owned by the intermediaries anymore. The user is in power, but they will still use intermediaries. But when an intermediary misbehaves or, you know, has some big issue or they raise prices too much or whatever, they're just going to be switched out and they are gone, right? So it is a very empowering future vision, I think, to have. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And we see it happen step by step. It's starting in finance, but it's not going to stop there. Speaking of a new era, that leaves some new questions for the largest part of our audience, which are lawyers and legal professionals. Currently, it's a lawyer's job to draft a contract. Where do you see lawyers' role in smart contracts? And do you think lawyers should be able to provide services regarding contracts or will they work together with coders? And lastly, as there are many specific regimes in legal systems regarding lawyers' liability, do you think coders creating smart contracts should be subject to similar provisions? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's not like, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't really know. But as this whole blockchain and crypto stuff becomes more mainstream, there will be more and more touch points between the law and the services that are being created with the help of smart contracts. And it will more and more, you know, require lawyers to create a legal framework in a sense, like a contractual framework, for example, to embed a certain smart contract application in. The world of DeFi that I've now mentioned many times, which I would urge all the listeners of this podcast to seriously research, it runs completely without legal contracts at the moment. Because the whole point of DeFi at the moment is to prove a point of what's possible with crypto assets and smart contracts. And like, there's no point to even having a legal contract because 
It doesn't need it. It just uses code and that's sufficient. But as soon as this market capitalization of DeFi grows from, I don't know, $50 billion to, you know, $5 trillion, which will invariably happen in the next couple of years, it will reach and touch so many more people and institutions that it will not be possible to work without legal legal framework. Just giving context to things in terms of the law and of contracts and liabilities and all these things, right? I think that's absolutely clear. And this will be a transition and a change where lawyers will play an important role. However, what I can say from my experience over the past couple of years is that it can be incredibly frustrating to work with lawyers when they just refuse to, you know, use their brain or their fantasy. And that can happen quite often, right? Lawyers often still have this attitude of just, you know, identifying a lot of the problems, but delivering like zero solutions. And I think this whole mindset is kind of antiquated and needs to change. But more and more often, you know, you encounter lawyers that are just absolutely brilliant. They are so fascinated by this matter and they come up with amazing solutions, right? And that's not only true for lawyers, that's true for, you know, consultants, tax advisors, you know, all kinds of related areas. And so I think we're seeing a change, a real change in attitude, and that's great. And in terms of the liability that you mentioned, yeah, so that is kind of an unsolved problem, maybe, if you want to call it that. There are, I think, you know, attempts to solve it again with decentralization, to have like decentralized insurance pools for smart contracts. Like there are literally projects out there that provide decentralized insurance pools for smart contracts, but I haven't seen them, you know, taking off in a major fashion. And software developers typically try to evade liability because they say, hey, okay, I program the software, but it's your responsibility if you want to execute that software, right? Like you're free to audit the code yourself and do your due diligence. But if you execute it, it's your problem. I just provided, you know, as is. And this is a role that software developers feel very comfortable and one that I don't think they want to leave. And another, I think, very important concept that we haven't touched at all upon today, which is, however, incredibly important as well, or has become incredibly important, is the concept of DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations. You've mentioned it quickly as this, you know, 2016 phenomenon, but this is really like nobody talks about that anymore. It's like, yeah, that happened. It's in the history books. It's funny, but it's not relevant anymore. When we talk about DAOs today, it is, you know, the 2020, 2021 concept of DAOs. And in fact, DAOs are being used every day by projects to create systems of exchange on blockchains where by design, you don't want to have a single entity or person responsible for the creation or maintenance of that system. For one reason, because of liability and the other reason, because of capital markets regulation, right? Because if you were to issue and maintain that system as a single entity, you would actually have to get permission to do this from all the financial market regulators in the major jurisdictions where your users sit, be it, you know, in Europe or be it in the US and so on. And by using a DAO and basically building a system where it's the users of the system themselves 
that create the assets in the system through, let's say, an initial liquidity offering and that maintain the system, let's say, through governance tokens and staking and voting, you're actually evading the complete legal responsibility of maintaining the thing. And so the question of liability doesn't even arise because it's the users themselves that use it and they use it at their own peril. And so... That is a very interesting phenomenon, and I think it kind of gives us a glimpse at where we're headed in the future. However, as we just mentioned before, what is the role of intermediaries going to be? You know, we're going to have more and more the emergence of intermediaries that say, you know, I'm providing essentially the services that a bank did in the past. So you can kind of create an account with me. And you can transfer me your tokens. I'm going to stake your tokens in different DeFi projects. I'm going to create an annual yield of 6 7% for you. That's like literally the standard in DeFi at the moment, which is, you know, crazy to people that still live in the fiat world. And I'm actually going to stake your stuff, your coins, only in systems that I have previously really vetted and that I've done a due diligence on. And so I'm actually going to take over the liability question. So if your coins are disappear or the project gets hacked or something that isn't even in my power, I'm going to be liable towards you for that. Like I'm literally confident enough in that particular DeFi system that I tell you I'm going to use to actually assume that responsibility towards you as a user. And I think this is actually one of the next functions of intermediaries that we're going to see because, yeah, I think we're at that level of maturity where demand also on the user side that we're going to see this happen. It's interesting to hear you say that and to describe this trend, because when I think about the core function that lawyers play in society, it is helping their clients with legal complexity and helping them essentially overcoming information asymmetry. And I wonder if people are already uncomfortable or not fully understand legalese, specific legal provisions, given the general level of technical skill in the population, it might be even worse for understanding the code of smart contracts. So there is obviously a need for someone to break it down to those people so that they know what they're getting into. And one could assume, as you have stated, that it's just their problem. But typically when people don't understand what they're getting into, some of them will not join and others will be unhappy with the results and then try some remedies. So at some point, any regulator, any state has to do something about it. I like the idea of these intermediaries, as you called them, that are taking up some of that responsibility. But I also wonder whether there is something on the education side of things, or maybe something like smart contract, you can call them lawyers, you could call them consultants. Is there a market for people whose job it is to explain what is going on and what you can and can't do? Or is that old school thinking? One of the most in-demand jobs at the moment right now, like one way you can literally, you know, I think earn a higher hourly wage than the best, most in-demand lawyers on the planet is smart contract auditors. Literally, like if you're a smart contract auditor at the moment with a certain reputation of, you know, being good at it, wow, you are so in-demand and you have a backlog of probably half a year at least. Like it's literally impossible to get a smart contract auditor at the moment. And they are expensive as hell, like crazy expensive. Their hourly wage is just through the roof. But I would bet way more than an equivalent, you know, lawyer expert in their field. And so, yes, it is very much needed, I think. 
but it's very far away from the skills that lawyers have learned in university. This is really about, you know, code auditing and, you know, finding bugs in code, essentially. And I think lawyers have some really amazing skills. So um, I think people listening to me throughout this conversation may think that I have very low opinion of lawyers, which isn't true. I'm a lawyer myself. Some of the smartest people I know are lawyers. Like lawyers are incredibly smart and they have some really amazing skills, like the ability to think which a lot of people you know don't have in a sense i mean everybody can think but really thinking methodologically and critically and working through a problem in a way where you know come to an actual conclusion that's useful that is something that lawyers can do which is a great skill but it's a skill that a mathematician probably has as well and a few other people that studied certain subjects that require critical thinking have as well and in that regard lawyers will always be useful in general and of course legal systems won't go away and for example the intermediaries that i've described they will use classical you know contracts and liability stuff vis-a-vis their users right and they are gonna take away all that complexity of having to understand what all these crazy DeFi smart contract systems do in order to create a 6% annual yield, right? I don't have to understand it. I just give my coins to this intermediary. They have the, you know, hardcore computer scientists who can tell how I understand which systems are safe and make sense and blah, blah, blah. And then they do all this for you. So lawyers won't go away and lawyers have great general purpose skills that are very much in demand in the information society going forward. But yeah, there are new kids on the block, the smart contract kids, and they don't care about lawyers or the law or anything. They just care about the code and what you can do with the code on this kind of connected, interoperable ledger and execution environment where you can do just the craziest things like risk-free lending, right? That's like in the concept or in the head of a lawyer, there is nothing like risk-free lending. But actually on the blockchain, you can lend assets risk free like you can have a mathematical proof that you get your assets back the moment you lend them away right this is just crazy and so there is this intimate relationship between law and technology in the context of blockchain that changes the way the law is being used for sure and it's a very unique time to be in okay All I heard was lawyers are not going away. And I think that's a very nice and uh, conciliatory note that we can end this recording on because I see we're already way over our allotted time. It was truly a pleasure. Florian, thank you so much for being here. And I think that's a wrap for today.